A lot of listeners to Travel with Rick Steves tell us they're eager to experience the Cuba that Christopher P. Baker has been telling us about over the years. It's one of the least threatening countries in the world, quite frankly, and one of the most... um welcoming also. But relaxing the restrictions on American travelers is already putting a strain on tourism in Cuba. Almost every hotel, certainly in the major tourist spots, is already full. They are at capacity. Chris Baker updates us on your options for finding the best of Cuba. If you prefer to venture way off the beaten path, Kim McQuarrie has unearthed stories of the famous and notorious in South America, from Charles Darwin to Che Guevara and even Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I think if you took Butch and Sundance back today to this area where they spent the last few years of their lives, they would they would recognize everything. I mean, there's still the adobe villages and this old mining town. We're finding adventures from Cuba to the Andes in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. The Andes Mountains are the setting for gripping stories of bandits and revolutionaries, dreamy-eyed explorers, and the remains of long-lost civilizations. Filmmaker and author Kim McCory shares what his travels down the spine of South America have revealed about the notable and the notorious, from Charles Darwin to Pablo Escobar. He joins us a little later this hour on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start with an update on the destination that's capturing the American imagination this year. As the Obama administration continues to loosen U.S. restrictions on travel to Cuba, more and more people are starting to make plans. The changing rules inspired me to make my first trip to Cuba over the new year. Since then, there's already been announcements of new direct air travel to Cuba and a further relaxation that permits individual Americans to make their own people-to-people travel arrangements for Cuba. I'm eager to welcome Christopher P. Baker back to talk with us about this fascinating country. Chris has been a leading authority on travel to Cuba now for decades, and he authors the Moon Guidebooks to Cuba and Havana. At the time we're recording, he's just returned from Havana to take your calls at 877-333-7425. Chris, thanks for being here. Rick, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Wow, it must be exciting for you because you've been at this for literally decades to see all the change that's happening with America's relation, United States' relation to Cuba from a tourism point of view and just in general. Sum up what's going on this year as far as travelers are are concerned about uh, Cuba and the United States. It's very exciting. It's almost overwhelming, quite frankly, because uh, in the past 12 months have been a string of changes from the Obama administration, most of them executive orders, and, of course, the announcement of an agreement for uh, 110 flights scheduled into Cuba on a weekly basis. I went down there. uh, I just bought my ticket to Mexico City, And then I bought a ticket from Mexico City to Havana on Aeromexico. I had to pay for it via London or something like that. I booked my B&Bs through a booking agency that I guess their address was in Canada because of the embargo. I couldn't send money for a deposit to Cuba, actually. But I just went down there through Mexico City. Every time I tried to book something, a a little drop-down page came and felt like it was right from Washington, D.C., that asked me, Are, do you have a general license and what category you're traveling under? And I said, professional research. I just clicked it, and um, I picked up my visa for a, a few bucks there and a few minutes at Mexico City Airport and flew right in, and, and it was just 
like going almost anywhere in the developing world. It was it was quite relaxing and more comfortable than I thought it would be. How should Americans look at the red tape and the hoops you got to go through now to get to Cuba? What what are the options? Did I do it the right way, or am I just lucky I'm not in prison now? Well, you're lucky, Rick, because you are actually legal. So now the key change of all in the last year is that all 12 categories of allowable travel are now self-policing, whereas before the vast majority you actually literally needed to write to the Treasury Department ah, and okay. get a written license. So you said so I'm now, legal because one of those 12 categories is, quote, professional research, and I'm a professional researcher. My daughter is a high school teacher, and she signed in as professional research also because she's a teacher and it's helpful to know about Cuba. And what you said was it's self-policing, and that's the sense that I got. When I got home, I flew back from Havana to Mexico to Houston. I got to the customs man in Houston, and he was kind of just waving me through, and I said, but I've been in Cuba. I've got souvenirs from Cuba. And he said, "He said, welcome home. <laughs> it, was, it was like nobody cared. Well, the bureaucrats, they run hot and cold. I've been actually into the States from Cuba in past years through the same airport, and boy, did I um, have grief during the Bush era. So they're bureaucrats, and they're, when they're told to go light, they go light. So really, it's an honor system, but you raised a very important point. Obama has now allowed immediate family to travel with anybody who is legally entitled to go. So any of those in the 12 categories can now take immediate family with them. Also, if you've got a reasonable case to make that it's professional research or education or religious or whatever, you just tick that box, and then your immediate family can go with you with no excuses. And as you said, for the time being, it's self-policing. I guess you could go with some sort of an educational tour group, but I really wanted to go independently, and I was able to pull it off. Let's talk about just the complexities because of the American embargo on Cuba, for instance— as far as I understand, it's cash only. I had to bring in several thousand dollars in 20 and $50 bills, and then I changed easily as I traveled. Is that the way it's going to be for a while? Do you think we need to bring our cash in with us, or can Americans use their credit cards in Cuba? Theoretically, Obama lifted the restrictions on using Visa and MasterCard. However, reality is that the financial institutions have not put in place everything that's needed to make that happen. So yes, it is going to be a cash-only basis for some time to come, I think. I do want to back up, Rick, and just clarify, for the vast majority of U.S. travelers, it is still not legal to go okay. unless they fall within those 12 categories, so journalists, etc. Okay. With the exception that they can go on a people-to-people -to -people tour group, and that's very important. It's the only way that any U.S. citizen can travel to Cuba right now still. But you mentioned something about theoretically, you know, theoretically, your credit cards are, are working. And, and I found in Cuba, whenever something is theoretically possible, <laughs> you should just assume it's not possible. I think that's <laughs> a fair statement. <laughs> I, I mean, I got really good at just nothing surprised me. I mean, if, there's, if, if, if your book said there's four places to change money in Trinidad, I just had been there long enough to know, well, sure, there's four places that historically have changed money. It was lucky that one of them was open and had money to change. Uh-huh. That's the way it goes, yep. So we got to remember that when we travel in Cuba. Christopher P. Baker's been leading groups around Cuba for years. He even leads motorcycle tours of the country. He's joining us today on Travel with Rick Steves to update us on how the increase in American tourism to Cuba is also changing the island. There's more about his guidebooks and his writing on Cuba at his website, ChristopherPBaker.com. And uh, everybody who's curious about Cuba is, is paying attention now. As things loosen up, Christopher, as we anticipate a flood of Americans joining 
already a popular tourist destination for Canadians and Europeans and other people from Latin America. What about the infrastructure? My sense was, yeah, there's hotels, but forget trying to get a hotel. You should just opt for the private rooms, the Casa Particular. Well, it's very simple to say that almost every hotel, certainly in the major tourist spots, is already full. They are at capacity. And so the overflow is being picked up by the Casas Particulares, or the private room rentals, and they are also virtually full in most of the very common or popular destinations. Trinidad, I know you were there, Vinales, the tobacco country, a lot of private room rentals, but boy, trying to find a room right now is really hard, not least because, yes, individual Americans are going, but the rest of the world, the Europeans and the Canadians who've been going for years are now pouring in in larger numbers because, as they like to say, we want to get here before the Americans come and ruin it. I was frustrated by looking for hotels. Would it be fair to recommend people who are thinking of going to Cuba on their own, to, who have to figure out their own accommodations, just leap over the hope of getting a hotel and, and, and go with the Casa Particulare option? And I stayed in four different Casa Particulares. Each was friendly, clean, inexpensive, uh, very accommodating. I just loved the, the B&B options while I was in Cuba. Oh, that's absolutely the way to go. If I'm not leading a group tour, I am staying in a private room rental. And of course, um, there are so many American groups now, the um, people-to-people educational groups, and they are filling up the hotels. But more importantly, to stay with a Cuban, to experience their lifestyle, to experience their friendliness, etc. doesn't matter where you go, you're going to find a Casa Particular mm. throughout the country. That is the way to experience and come to a an understanding of a country that is quite complex, not easy to understand. And, you know, Christopher, I would really remind people, the Cubans that you're going to meet in these humble little B&Bs are, at least from my experience, beautiful, dear people. And when I needed anything, they could help set me up. I needed to drive from Trinidad back to Havana, and it's a three- or four-hour drive. And the woman at my B&B, she just uh, knew that I needed to do that. I asked her to find me a car. She knew who was honest and reliable, and for $150, the four of us had a private taxi to take us on a three- or four-hour drive from Trinidad back to Havana. That was a lot of money in Cuba, but for the four of us to spend $150 to get from bed and breakfast to bed and breakfast with a three- or four-hour drive in between, that was quite a good, convenient deal. Oh, I'd say so, and uh, you've just touched on one of the things I really love about Cuba. Um, There are so many magical qualities, it's hard to select. But I think this tremendous friendliness of the Cubans, that's one of the most important things, and not least when you put it in the context of the animosity between the two governments for years. There's no such thing that exists between Americans and Cubans themselves. They actually love Americans. You know, I found that across the board, Chris. I was talking to everybody I could, first of all, I found people were comfortable talking uh, privately with discretion, you know, about political issues. I found that uh, generally people were quite poor, but it was no more poor than what you'd find in Honduras or Guatemala. And the difference was there was sort of a a dignity and a pride and and a confidence with the basic working-class people in Cuba. They don't have freedom. It's not a democracy by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, there's a lot of people in prison for demonstrating against the government. But the people I talked to... They had health care, they were educated, they had stability, and the very interesting thing that the people in San Salvador or Guatemala City wouldn't have is they could walk through the barrios at midnight, or I could, feeling completely safe. I was out at midnight in the big city, two million people, ramshackle barrios, as poverty-stricken as any place I've been in this hemisphere, and I felt really safe. 
Um, these are all important points, and uh, it's really striking, I think, to any visitor. For me personally, the question of poverty, inverted commas, uh, is a very important one in Cuba because I've traveled throughout the Americas and I've seen real poverty. And I say to people who are looking for or speak about poverty in Cuba, if you really want to see poverty in Cuba, go to the airport and get on a plane to Jamaica, Dominican Republic, mm. Honduras, etc. It's very, very important to understand that, yes, whilst you're quite correct, Rick, that Cubans as a whole are relatively poor, you have to put in context how it was in 1958 when the revolution mm -hmm. triumphed. I mean, real destitution. You had, in parallel with Havana, the wealthiest tropical city in the world, and a middle class in the cities throughout Cuba, immense destitution. And so it, it was two worlds, and uh, that is what the revolution has succeeded in doing, is alleviating the misery associated with being poor and alleviating the real poverty itself. You'll find photos and observations from my own holiday in Havana and links to Chris's website in the notes for this week's show, and that's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. There's lots more with Chris Baker and your calls on Travel to Cuba in just a minute. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. From Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid to Che Guevara, the wilds of the Andes Mountains have stories to tell. Kim McQuarrie tells us a few that he investigated in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, Cuba travel expert Christopher P. Baker's our guest as we hear how the tourism industry in Cuba is trying to keep up with the increasing demand from American travelers. Americans are taking advantage of a new freedom to travel to Cuba since executive orders have been issued by President Obama that make it easier for more Americans to go there. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Alinda's on the line now from Deerfield Beach in Florida. Alinda, have you been to Cuba? No, I haven't. My cousin just returned from Cuba, and she told me that Cuba doesn't seem quite ready for tourists yet, at least not used to American luxuries. She said the hotel had famous guests uh, in the past, 50 years ago or 70 years ago, but it, they had to jump over a trench to get from the bus into the hotel and that they only had hot water half of the days they were there. So I'm wondering, is Cuba ready for tourists now? Well, you said uh, the luxury expectations of a tourist or something like that. And Linda, I would say if you're looking for any kind of luxuries uh, in Cuba, you're, going, you're not going to the right country. It's a tough situation economically. Christopher, what would your comment be on that? Actually, you know, using one hotel, it's as an example, there are quite a number of deluxe hotels. Um, the Hotel Parque Central in Havana is one that I typically use for many of my groups, and that is by any standards a world-class hotel. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, I will take your point that 
many of the facilities, certainly if they're run, managed by the state, fall below international par. But there's a critical point that was just picked up on here by Rick, and that is that you don't go to Cuba for luxury. What you're going to Cuba for is, of course, to experience Cuba, the reality of Cuba, Cuba as it is. Of course, we want our conveniences and our comforts. Many hotels actually provide those in ample measure. And I think Cuba, whilst I will say that the state-run properties can fall significantly below international par, Cuba does get a bad rap often for its hotels because in the beach resorts, not least, and in Havana, there are some superb hotels by any standards. And, of course, you have the new restaurant scene, the gastro-revolution, as I call it, um, is really bringing world-class cuisine to Havana and increasingly to other places. Martha's calling in from Portland in Oregon. Martha, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. I do have a question. I've been doing research on a future trip, and the changing of money seems to break into two camps. The ones that say, change it into euros or Canadian dollars, and then change it when you get to Cuba. And other camps say, oh, just go with the American money and go for it. What's Christopher's take on that? Remembering that the American dollar uh, suffers a 13% surcharge more than others when you go to a formal changing bureau. Yeah, it's very easy to answer that. The The surcharge on the U.S. dollar is actually 10%, so you pay, you lose 13% because all currencies are charged 3% commission. With euros, it's a safer bet. The problem with the Canadian dollar has been that it has been consistently declining for the past couple of years. So if you buy your Canadian dollars well in advance and it declines, then any gain you have by not paying the 10% commission in Cuba is potentially lost. You change the U.S. dollar, you are going to get 87 cents because the conversion rate between the dollar and the Cuban cook, as it's called, is fixed. I just went with dollars cash, and I I found it very easy to change money at fancy hotels and at change bureaus. I would say when you get an opportunity to change, you should jump on it because a lot of times the exchange desks are closed or they're out of money or there's a long line, and I end up taking that 10% hit as I just considered it my personal 10% 10% boycott tax because the American uh, boycott on Cuba is uh, is damaging their economy. Whatever the politics behind it are, I didn't mind having a, losing a 10% on my exchange. I think uh, one thing to remember, uh, Christopher mentioned the kook. There's two different currencies in circulation. There's a convertible currency that is essentially one peso per American dollar. And then there is the local currency that local people use, which is about 25 per dollar. And I was there for nearly two weeks and never really had the opportunity to, or the need to use the, the local currency. I found that for the typical tourist, you're going to be using the, uh, the convertible hard peso, which is about like a dollar. Uh, Christopher, what is your take on the, the difference between the two currencies? You know, I always love to have some of the local money in my pocket because there are only two things you really need to use it for. Copelia Ice Cream Store. That is uh, an absolute must in Havana. You've got to sit with the Cubans, and you can only pay in national pesos. Ah, good tip. And, of course, it's an absolute must to avoid the tourist taxes, if you can, at least at one stage, get in the colectivo, the old 1950s taxes that run along set routes like buses and picking up and dropping off people. Be a real Cuban. It costs you 10 Cuban national pesos, 
that's 50 cents anywhere along the route and the music is going and you're, hmm. you're jiving in there with five or six other Cubans as the vehicle rattles down the road. A true Cuban experience. That is one of the great opportunities when you're in Cuba to, to go local with the taxi, the shared taxi situation. And uh, I guess that does make more sense to have the local currency for that. Martha, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. Christopher, uh, when it comes to the taxis and so on, I really found it helpful to find a, not a, one of these classic American car taxi drivers because they're more aggressive and, and they know what they can get and they can charge uh, first world rates for their car in a lot of cases. But just to hire a cabbie with a, an old Russian Lada kind of car and have them for a couple of hours and read your guidebook like I did with your guidebook and lace together a bunch of markets and cemeteries and stops and, and use that driver to to be your wheels to get around town efficiently, and it's surprisingly inexpensive. Yes, you have a very wise traveler, Rick. You did it the right way. Um, Just allow a little potential extra time for a break. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher P. Baker about Cuba, and Cuba is a rapidly changing tourist destination, that is for sure. Hey, Christopher, I just want to kind of review what is possible, what is kind of legal enough, I guess you could say. You can take an educational tour from the United States. If you find a tour company, yours or any other, that has the mission and the itinerary and the dates that you like, that's perfectly legal. They go through all the hoops for you or they hold your hand while you do it. Otherwise, you can go like my friends and I go through Canada or Mexico and you have to get a general license, which, as you said, is self-policed. You have to declare you're one of 12 categories. But if you're willing to declare you're one of these categories, you get a general license, and then when you arrive, you're just on your own, and Cuba doesn't care. It's just a matter of if you can figure it out on your own. Is that basically the situation right now? That's, in essence, exactly right. The distinction from how you've defined it is that a general license is actually not a piece of paper. It is a pre-approval to travel. So if you declare, for example, that you're a journalist, the Treasury Department will take you at your word, unless uh, November election (laughs) goes the wrong way and things shift. Uh, Currently, then, yes, you're, you're in the clear, in essence. And the risk is our government can fine you tens of thousands of dollars, and I imagine they did that in previous administrations, but I understand during Obama's seven or eight years, there have been no... None of these fines against Americans traveling against the embargo independently in Cuba. Is that your understanding? The last one was in 2011. 2011. And the Bush, uh, last Bush administration, they got serious. But really, they're uh, turning a blind eye right now, frankly. That's the feeling that I had. Christopher, the fear I have is that Cuba is changing so fast without the infrastructure, and there is this pent-up flood of interest It's long been the number one Caribbean destination for Canadians and Germans, and now Americans are getting a sense of this, and the cruise ships are starting to salivate. What do you see as the challenges to Cuba, and where are we at right now? How is it changing? What's happening from just the changing dynamic of tourism in Cuba? Well, my biggest fear is already being realized, quite frankly, because the last two years have seen such an increase in the number of tourists, um, 20% this year and uh, almost a doubling of Americans. And what we're seeing is not just a stress on the infrastructure, the hotels, etc., we've already defined as being full, but places like Trinidad, this beautiful UNESCO colonial city, that is flooded with tourists to the point that the whole sense of experience has, has changed. It is now on the verge of being spoiled. And one of the other factors that 
really concerned me is that many of the locals who are now involved in private business, they're, they are the ones who are running the restaurants, they're the ones who are providing the room rentals, etc., picking up the slack where the hotel structure cannot, where it fails. Many of those are beginning to shift towards types of enterprise that I don't think appropriate to Cuba. One of my friends who runs a bed and breakfast recently talked about putting jet skis on the local bay just outside mm. Trinidad. That is a potential disaster as far as I'm concerned. Um, even though I am going to be lecturing on a couple of cruise ships around Cuba next year, I think the arrival of the big cruise ships is its not far away and it's uh, not going to be welcome for me. Uh, personally, I think that is the beginning of spoilation um, as thousands of people pour off the cruise ships to walk these beautiful colonial streets. And also, just going forward, the sheer volume of people overwhelming the infrastructure uh, and changing the very character of what I personally love so much about Cuba. Of course, the Cubans deserve better economically. They deserve to step into the 21st century, and we're also seeing that, by the way, with rapid spread of Internet by government uh, right now. But I, I do fear that um, the old Cuba that I so loved is now beginning to fade. Mm. Because you have this amazing world that it's hard for an American who's not been there to even imagine it. You've got people that literally make $50 a month, and they're not impoverished. When you assess how much money they have, you've got to remember they've got mm -hmm. subsidized food, they've got education, they've got health care, they've got a retirement, but they get $50 of pocket money basically a month, depending on their job. And then you have people in the tourist industry that make $50 in tips in one day. Talk about the two different parallel worlds in the economy right now in Cuba. Absolutely, but it's also important to remember that the vast majority of state employees who are averaging about $25 a month in salary have secondary income that is far in excess of that. So you have mm -hmm. many, many individuals who are bringing in money from Florida or getting money from Florida. An unbelievable $5 billion last year. So a significant percentage of the populace don't even need to work, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And then others are involved in private enterprise, black market, etc. So most people find a way. And it's one of the reasons you don't see that kind of destitution that you see on other islands that you would expect just based on $25 a month. So it's very misleading. Of course, now with all the changes that Raul has initiated in the economy, a very, very large percent of the populace are involved in private enterprise. Now, of course, the vast majority are catering to the tourist industry, which is booming. Yeah. So there's a growing middle class you're seeing. In the last two or three years, I've seen far more private uh, vehicles that we would define as very nice modern sedans, etc. You're seeing so much more money in the system. This is recycling through the private enterprise network as if it were as a capitalist system. And Castro's letting this happen. I mean, I was walking down the streets in Trinidad, and it seemed every house was renting private rooms, and they were advertising the private rooms. When the bus would arrive at the station, there was a rope keeping the people away from the tourists as they arrived, so the tourists could get off at the bus without getting <laughs> trampled by the people who wanted well, to take them on a taxi ride or take them to their bed and breakfast. Well, it's not just that Raul is letting it happen. He's actually sponsoring it. This is a part of the governmental plan to reshape the economy, to come into alignment with the 21st century post-Fidel. Uh, now, in spite of all of this very complicated and confusing and, and quite a sort of sad economic reality, on the streets, I felt perfectly safe. There were hustlers, but they were sort of jovial hustlers. I, I felt like there was a friendly spirit on the streets. I, I didn't see sex workers. I, I didn't find people were 
aggressively begging, but dapper men in suits with big cigars wanted to pose for a photograph for a dollar or something like that. It's one of the least threatening countries in the world, quite frankly, and one of the most... um welcoming also, uh, welcoming not just in terms of Cubans open their doors as well as their hearts to foreigners and especially to Americans, but welcoming in the sense that it's uh, refreshing in this world of stereotypes and McDonald's, etc. everywhere. Um, Fortunately, we have a country here that has no McDonald's, Starbucks, and where the people have a smile on their face for the most part, uh, whilst, as you all correctly pointed out, it's far from a country where the freedom of speech is guaranteed, etc., Nonetheless, neither is it a place where the police are out there beating people over the heads with batons, as uh, yeah. many amongst the Cuban-Americans in Florida would have you believe. Yeah, I don't want to minimize their lack of democracy and freedom, but I saw no police presence or military presence to speak of, and I felt safe on the streets uh, at midnight in Havana. Christopher P. Baker is our favorite expert on travel to Cuba. He writes guidebooks to Cuba, published by Moon and by National Geographic Traveler. His website is ChristopherPBaker.com. When you think about sorting through all the options, the typical American will have 10 days or so, and I ended up going to Havana, Trinidad, and Vinales. And I thought I had some big triumph when I figured that out after all my studying before the trip, but that's what almost everybody does. They're all doing the same thing, Havana, Vinales, Trinidad. Vinales is the natural wonder where you ride a horse, you visit a tobacco farm, and you see them rolling a cigar, and it's just a wonderful example of amazing natural wonder. And Trinidad, as you said, is this wonderful colonial town, which is a tiny town of, what, thirty or 40,000 people or something like that, that's just charming as can be. Talk just for a minute about Vinales and Trinidad as side trips from Havana. Yeah, Vinales uh, is three hours west of Havana and is both the center of tobacco production, but also is the most scenically beautiful part of Cuba. And you get this combination of stepping back. If you step back in Havana to the mid-1950s in Vinales, you step back to the 19th century because the ox-drawn plows, tilling the fields, etc. And so it's an immersion in a fairly innocent Cuba, if you will, of a century ago, a countryside that lets you slow down and really enjoy having escaped Havana to something that is uh, very much lost in much of the rest of the world. Trinidad, the UNESCO World Heritage City, is really caught in the 18th century and early 19th century. It grew wealthy on sugarcane production two centuries ago and is totally unchanged in the center. Not one modern building in the historic core of this city, which is a very rare treasure where no cars are allowed in the center and it's clip-clop of hooves and mm. horses and donkeys. And it's very difficult to describe this sense of time warp um, experience to anybody who's not been there. It's like a two-story town. I mean, I climbed to the rooftop of the church and it was far above every other rooftop in the town. And uh, you wander around, uh, especially in the evening, and, and it's just for a tourist, it's a delightful collection of music options and food options and, and just lots of fun. A memory that you brought back to mind uh, in Vinales you know, we did the touristy thing of of taking a horse ride through the countryside, and the great thing about that was we got in the back lanes a chance to see a bit of the economy that's not connected to the paved roads, and it's there. There's farms, there's little hamlets, uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's all sorts of action that you would never get close to when you're driving, and when you take a little horse ride in Vinales, that gives you a new dimension of Cuba. Sure, and especially in Vinales. To watch that farmer, Christopher, roll that cigar. <laughs> 
that was one of the most beautiful and visual and fragrant and rewarding things that you could possibly experience in your travelers to see a farmer and roll a cigar. Out I hope you smoked the, it. <laughs> it is the best cigars in the world. Hey, this has been so much fun, Christopher. This is uh, Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Christopher P. Baker. He's the author of The Moon Handbooks to both Cuba and Havana. Thank you so much for uh, giving us a better understanding of that long forbidden but every day now less forbidden island of Cuba. Thanks so much, Rick. He spent several years traveling the length of the Andes in South America. Documentarian Kim McQuarrie got to meet indigenous people who still tell tales about the Spanish conquest. He interviewed relatives of drug lord Pablo Escobar in Colombia and in Bolivia. And he learned some fascinating details about the deaths of Che Guevara, Butch Cassidy, and the Sundance Kid. He joins us next for Tales of Life and Death in the Andes on Travel with Rick Steves. As an Emmy-winning documentary filmmaker with a background in anthropology, Kim McQuarrie turns out to be the perfect guide for exploring the Andes Mountains and unearthing its little-told tales. He followed the path of conquistadors, searching for the elusive El Dorado, and retraced the steps of the trailblazers and renegades of the 19th and 20th centuries. Kim has written Life and Death in the Andes on the trail of bandits, heroes, and revolutionaries after venturing more than 4,000 miles down the spine of South America from Colombia all the way to Patagonia. In his book, he explores what ice maiden mummies have to say. And he talks about things you probably never knew regarding the discoveries of Charles Darwin. He even digs up evidence from the final days of Che Guevara, Butch Cassidy, and the Sundance Kid. He covers the hunt for Pablo Escobar and gorillas from The Shining Path. Kim McQuarrie, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Oh, thanks for having me. Clearly, from reading your book, Life and Death in the Andes, you've done a lot of travel. Before we get into the the amazing people you met and stories that you've uncovered, tell us about the 4,500-mile trip you made the length of the Andes. Yeah, well, I uh, came up with the idea of uh, doing that journey. It's always been in the back of my mind to do a a trip from the north of South America all the way down to the very tip at the bottom. I'd been to South America quite a bit and lived down there, but never done a journey like that. So I started up in Colombia, in the very far north of Colombia, up in Cartagena, and then I ended up the journey 43, 4,500 miles further south, down all the way down to Cape Horn on the tip of Patagonia, and stopped a lot of places along the way and looked into different stories. So how did you... um just from a travel point of view, because we hear about guerrilla wars and drug wars and, you know, the, the danger, but from a safety and a comfort point of view, how realistic is it for, uh, you know, your typical traveler to, to make a journey like you did? Uh, very much so. And that's, you know, one of the uh, myths about South America. I mean, and, and I'm not helping with my book, <laughs> subtitled Revolutionaries and Bandits, but uh, right. it is not nearly as what, you know, it's portrayed to be. People, you know, knee-jerk think about, oh, there must be the, you know, bandits and revolutionaries all over the place down there. And it's, South America has big cosmopolitan cities, metropolitan cities, and big middle class. And there's good transport, which has improved vastly in the last 20, 30 years. Great bus systems, trains, planes, that kind of thing. So it's a very safe place in general to travel. Obviously, there's places you wouldn't go, just like you wouldn't go to places in Chicago and Los Angeles. But for the average tourist, it's a fantastic place to travel. Now, you had a chance to study in Europe or South America, and you chose to study in France, yet you ended up traveling and writing extensively about South America. When you compare South America and Europe from a traveler's point of view and from a a richness of material, if you're going to be meeting people and writing, how are they different and how are they the same? 
Well, that's that's a good point because I wanted to study abroad, and I was torn uh, between going to South America and, and going to Europe. But from an American standpoint, I had only been to Europe for a very short time, a few weeks, and I was, you know, for us, for Americans, for a lot of Americans, it's the you know origin of our culture, Western civilizations, that kind of thing. I'd studied that in high school and college, and I was just very curious about studying somewhere there, and I was always drawn to France. But I did that, lived there for a year and a half, and, and had a great time. But the, one of the big differences, South America has has frontier. It has the Amazon jungle. There's uncontacted tribes down there. Europe is, is and South America has, it was, you know, it's part of the new world. It was cut off from the rest of the world for thousands of years since the first people arrived. So it's a whole different kind of experience. They're both fascinating, but just in a nutshell, South America has a vast frontier and all kinds mm-hmm. of undiscovered ruins. I would imagine for someone like you who knows South America well, it seems odd that everybody goes to Machu Picchu, but there's so much of it that's just completely ignored. What's an undiscovered highlight that you would say is just too often missed? Cusco is the capital of the Inca Empire, was the center of that, and Machu Picchu is not very far away. And because uh, the Spaniards never discovered Machu Picchu, it, it was in pristine condition, at least pristine for if, if a city sat around for 500 years in the, in the rainforest. But the Incas built uh, a road work, 26,000 miles total of roads, and they stretched for 3,000 miles. So the famous Inca Trail that goes to Machu Picchu is like a 26-mile stretch. So there's amazing Inca ruins and pre-Inca ruins littering South America up and down the Andes. You never hear about that. You always hear about Machu Picchu. And in your book, you wrote um, one of your highlights that, that you'd really recommend people considering is getting on a ship, leaving Punta Arenas and heading south to Cape Horn. What's the attraction there? Um, you have to get on a ship because there's really no roads that will take you down through that area. So that's really the only way to travel through there. So it's very, very pristine. There's fjords, there's beautiful islands, pristine islands, forested islands, glaciers. This is where there used to be a lot of different Indian tribes down there in canoes. It's just a beautiful, pristine area of the world all the way down through Patagonia. And taking a ship down there, it's, just a, it's, mm. it's one of the best ways to explore, but it's actually only one of the few ways. You need to be on a boat. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kim McQuarrie, and his book is Life and Death in the Andes, the subtitle, On the Trail of Bandits, Heroes, and Revolutionaries. Okay, Kim, let's get into the subtitle here, On the Trail of Bandits, Heroes, and Revolutionaries. Tell us about the hunt for Pablo Escobar and and, uh, what you learned with that. Well, Pablo Escobar has almost entered mythological status, and of course now recently there's a series, the Netflix series Narcos, has really brought him to the mainstream here in North America. But one of the fascinating things I had heard about that story was not even so much Pablo Escobar, which is a typical rags-to-riches story of somebody who started you know, at the very bottom and became one of the wealthiest people in the world, but it was the story of about the person who brought him down, and there was a colonel who was assigned to capture him, and that was considered by his colleagues to be a suicide mission. And on top of that, he was offered a $6 million bribe by Pablo Escobar if he would cease and desist. And instead of doing that, he, he told Escobar no, and he went ahead and two years later captured him. And I was just intrigued by who in their right mind living in Colombia would, would do that. And what happened to the, the man who captured the great drug lord? Escobar tried to kill him numerous times, had all kinds of assassins after him. They blew up his apartment where his family was, and he stuck with it. And actually his son was also was a police cadet, or a recently graduated police cadet. They teamed up, and they finally located Escobar and found him in his apartment, and there was a, a shootout on top of the roof, and Escobar was brought down. He was killed. And what happened to the, the man who, who found him? 
he was pretty un, unsung down in Colombia because at the time it was kind of a top secret operation. They didn't want to broadcast. Well, he'd that, probably you know, rather who, be unsung, wouldn't he? <laughs> exactly. No, it's exactly right. And even I'll afterwards, catch him, but don't you know, put me in the paper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And Escobar was the opposite. He wanted to be in the paper. So it was not very well known what he what he was up to during that time. Mm-hmm. Escobar knew, and sure. uh, but the public didn't. And then after he was captured, it's the old story about you know, um, success has a thousand uh, fathers and failures an orphan. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody came forward to claim credit, and so oh, yeah. he was kind of he stayed unsung for a long time. But he he was promoted to general eventually, and he retired. And I spent a bunch of time interviewing him, and and you couldn't meet a nicer guy in the so world. So he survived it. That's a compliment to yeah. Columbia that you can actually uh, do something against the the big-time drug boss and, and survive and, and, and live to tell the story. 100%. Um, that's why I was so interested in the yeah. story and what makes a person like that tick. And he's, you know, he, I mean, that's unusual that somebody would take that stance given the odds of, you know, being right. killed. That's heroic. Yeah, it's, it's completely heroic. Pablo Escobar must have, in order for him to even function, he must have been seen a little differently by the peasants. Did he have that sort of uh, Robin Hood dimension to his persona? He did very much so, and he was very politically astute. Well, in some ways, he was very politically astute. But there was actually, you know, Colombia has a history of kind of Robin Hood-like characters in its past of, you know, uh, bandits who went against the government and redistributed wealth to some extent. Mm-hmm. I think Escobar very cannily tapped into that, you know, that that myth, and he did redistribute wealth. He gave away you know, money and things like that to the people, especially Medellin, but it was also very cunning in the sense that he knew he needed them to be on his side. He needed their support. He didn't want to have a bunch of informants and that kind of thing. So it was, These guys, these Robin Hoods probably didn't have a big heart. They probably just were investing in their own safety by, by buying off the public and making them folk heroes in their own time. Yeah, I mean, it's 100%. And Escobar was, you know, equivalent to the Godfather. I mean, the Italian, you know, Godfathers give away favors and that kind of thing, but they expect something in return. And Escobar was very much expected something in return when, when needed. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Kim McQuarrie. He describes how 168 Spanish soldiers conquered an empire of 10 million in his book, The Last Days of the Incas. His latest book is Life and Death in the Andes, On the Trail of Bandits, Heroes, and Revolutionaries. There's more about Kim's books and documentaries at kimmacquarie.com. That's spelled M-A-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E. Kim, you also take a closer look at the revolutionary leader Che Guevara in your book. Now, Che, after fostering the revolution in Cuba and serving in its government, later surfaced in Bolivia. But he was attempting to organize a peasant revolt there, and in 1967, he was executed by the Bolivian army. What did your travels in Bolivia teach you about Che? I was interested in Che Guevara. Obviously, he's you know he's an iconic figure, and you can't travel. I'm sure you found this as well. You can't travel anywhere in the world without people having his image on their T-shirts. But if you ask most of them, none of them have any idea of who that is on their T-shirt. You know, hmm. is that a yeah. Cuban? Is that a Bolivian? Some revolution? They have no idea. So I was I was curious about both. You know, what is what was the story behind the image? And I was also very curious. You know, I'd read that Che Guevara failed in Bolivia. You know, he was hunted down, captured, and, and shot. And I was curious, just from a revolutionary standpoint, you know, what, where did he go wrong? What did he make errors? You know, was there no support from the population? I was very curious about his, his the individual story that led to his, his his last battle down there. To what degree is the United States interested in these uh, chases? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, the United States actually trained the Bolivian forces that actually captured Che Guevara. We had Green Beret advisors down there, and Abimal Guzman, who a lot of people have never heard about outside of Peru. He was the leader of the, the Maoist Shining Path there. 
The day he was captured, the first person to get a phone call was not the Peruvian president, but it was President Bush because uh, a CIA officer was there with you know the, the people that were in charge of that operation. So the U.S. has always given assistance uh, against Escobar as well. As a matter of fact, you know the U.S. was involved in, in helping track down Escobar. So in all three of those stories, the U.S. was involved, although you know that's lesser well known because they were doing that not overtly or not they didn't want to make that all public so it's it's undercover but it's the CIA nevertheless and and they got their eyeballs on these things going on down and deep down in Latin America this is Travel with Rick Steves we're talking with Kim McQuarrie and his book is Life and Death in the Andes and uh, Kim you've talked about Che Guevara you've talked about Pablo Escobar let's talk a little bit about the Shining Path because we hear it as the Maoist group Shining Path and it it must have really resonated with uh, Peru because it was a frontal attack on the government. It was going against American interests and uh, it persists. It had staying power. What's your take on The Shining Path? Are there different narratives on it? Well, I, I got first interested because I went down to Peru the first time in the 1980s and that was when The Shining Path was at its height and they had a curfew in Lima and they had tanks in the streets so you couldn't avoid uh, its presence and they almost toppled the government of Peru by 1992. And so I was interested, and I'd worked as a journalist down there as well as an anthropologist, and so I had interviewed Shining Path, the guerrillas in, in the prison there, and I'd been to their liberated zone, so I was naturally curious, you know, about what was up. But the other thing that interested me, there's been a lot of revolutionary movements, you know, over time in, in South America, and one of those was, you know, what Che Guevara did in the late 1960s in, in Bolivia, and I was curious, why was this group, the Shining Path, had able to succeed so much more so from their standpoint than Che Guevara did in Bolivia? And the answer's complex, but the leader of the Shining Path, Abimal Guzman, realized he needed support, local support, which he got up in the Andes because he was a, basically a philosophy teacher up in an Andean university in Ayacucho. And he taught a lot of students over a decade or more, and they were kind of indoctrinated into, into Maoism, into Marxism, that kind of thing. So he built his base first before he launched his revolution. And so that was one of the keys to, he ultimately failed, but that's why he took it to the extent that he, he did take it. Well, what was the attraction of the Shining Path movement and Guzman? And was it a land rights sort of thing? Was it landless peasants against big landowners? Or what did it boil down to? What did they offer the peasants to go into a guerrilla war against their uh, central government? Right. Well, there's been a history, in not just in Peru, but in a lot of, especially the, the conquered areas of, of South America, the different countries where, where former parts of the Inca Empire, there's been a disparity in wealth because when the conquistadors arrived, they conquered the Inca Empire, and then they built their cities on the coast so they could have trade there, and they kind of tended to ignore all the hinterland, which was all the Andes and the jungle, that kind of thing. They were interested in extracting wealth. And that template stayed in place for 500 years in many places, in, in Bolivia and Peru, that kind of thing. Those, And Ayacucho, where this movement first started, was started by very well-educated this fellow, Abimal Guzman. He was a philosophy professor. But he was able to take advantage of the fact that he was teaching one of the poorest areas of Peru, like a forgotten area of Peru, where people really their lives hadn't changed in much in 400 years. And that was the fuel that that he needed to fuel his revolutionary movement. Okay. And what's the state of the movement today? Uh, Well, he was captured in in 1992, and he had prepared for everything except his own capture. Like, they had created these Uh. uh, mere mere parts of the organizations of different branches were captured. They had other, you know, people ready to spring into place, but they'd never prepared for the leadership to be captured. In 1992, there's another whole story behind that, who tracked him down and how they found him, which is actually an amazing story, which is what I researched. 
um, he was captured. And when they captured him, they captured a lot of the leaders. And that really... That took the steam out of the revolution then. Took the steam out of the revolution. There's, <laughs> if you're a charismatic revolutionary leader, you better envision your movement without you. Exactly. And he did not. And no. nor did the, the leadership there, the, the 12 people who were actually kind of leading that. So when they were captured, that was the end. There's still remnants like out in the jungle and stuff, yeah. but it's just a, a shadow of what it was. That was really the end of their movement. What a fascinating place to travel considering all of the interesting characters, as you said, on the trail of bandits, heroes, and revolutionaries. We're talking with Kim McQuarrie, his book, Life and Death in the Andes. And let's finish, Kim, just talking about the most famous bandits of all, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. We all know what happened in the movie. Uh, what did you learn happened in actuality? Well, for all the stories I looked into, one of the things that was not just interesting going to the places where these stories took place, like where did what actually happened to Butch and Sundance? Was it like in the movie? Was there a big shootout there in the end? But I wanted to physically see what the kind of environment they're in. But I also wanted to find some kind of a connection to the modern world, somebody living here and now that was affected in some way. So I actually found a fellow whose father was a young boy living in the mining town where Butch and Sundance had their, their final shootout and claims he knows where they were, they were buried in the nearby cemetery there. And the interesting thing is this part of Bolivia has changed very little as many parts of Bolivia. And I think if you took Butch and Sundance back today to this area where they spent the last few years of their lives, they would they would recognize everything. I mean, there's still the adobe villages and this old mining town. and this. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. So it's a beautiful area of Bolivia, by the way. But the, the biggest disparity is that in the movie, um, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, had this massive shootout with the, basically the whole Bolivian army. In reality, the shootout was with like four policemen. <laughs> Bad finale for a movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was... A, I had to give credit where credit is due. That William Goldman wrote the screenplay for the 1969 film Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. He had done a lot of research, and that was actually his first screenplay. And there was an article circulating from like 1930s that had portrayed it as it was portrayed in the movie. But hmm. subsequently, there's been more research, and it turns out it was just a four policemen who finally hmm. cornered them in this little place they were staying, and that was the that's what happened. I would think by the nature of uh, many cultures and the struggles in Latin America, a lot of times. Folk heroes, the, the stories of their demise become bigger after their death than actuality. 100%. I mean, I, I don't even think that Butch Cassidy, outside of the western United States, certain states there, were very well known at all. And uh, obviously the movie helped, but they tend to bandits, just like in Colombia with Pablo Escobar, once they die the myth starts to build and then the myth gets told a thousand times and that story grows and by the time you gets to Hollywood and you put a couple of actors in there then it's really blown up and that's ah. what's happened with both Escobar and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Ah, maybe you can make a case it's better to let them just rot in prison then and rather than become folk heroes. Well, if you don't want to broadcast their exploits that's probably true because look at, look at Pablo Escobar today he's all over the, the television and movies and that kind of thing. Right. Hey, fascinating stuff, Kim. Thank you very much for joining us. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Kim McQuarrie, his book, Life and Death in the Andes. Thank you, Kim. Thank you very much, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling. Gretchen Strauch read our listener travel haiku. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to KUCR in Riverside, California, and KNPR Las Vegas for their help this week. You can listen again on demand and find guest information in the details for each week's show. Our radio page is updated weekly at ricksteves.com.
Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, giving you feedback on your pronunciation as you learn a new language to help your language be clear and authentic sounding to the native ear. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.